Welcome to Cursed Objects, a podcast all about cultural history, politics and tat. I'm a historian, I think, sometimes, and broadcaster, <laughs> Dr. Kasha T. And as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Hancox. Hello, I'm Dan. Uh, I'm a journalist and author. And uh, today we're going to be saying that I'm a historian as well, because I did a history degree a very long time ago. That's a very history-ish sort of episode. Three historians in one room. Yes, you've guessed it. <laughs> Maybe from the title of the podcast, this is a very special episode with a guest who is one of our favourite historians. Charlotte Lydia Riley is a historian of the 20th century in Britain, um, and she explores issues around empire, the Labour Party, culture and politics. She's also the author of the new book, Imperial Island, all about empire in the 20th century, which Dan and I have been reading this summer and can highly, highly recommend. She's also host of the Tomorrow Never Knows podcast, but most importantly... She's one of the coolest and most interesting historians around. So, Charlotte, I met you at a conference in Brighton and it was just it was just an amazing experience to me because I was the only postgrad speaking at that conference mm-hmm. and the way that you so generously engaged with the things that I was talking about around museums, um, around the histories that they represent and create was something that is actually really rarely afforded to first kind of junior academics but second in academia in general (laughs) and you just kind of have this way of interacting I think with other historians in just such a generous way so I'm really excited but also Dan you two know each other I think um yeah we met um at the book launch for uh, my good friend Ellie Davies and Rianne Jones's book Under My Thumb which you contributed a chapter to which is a fantastic book out on repeater a few years ago about What's the subtitle again? Is it misogynist songs and uh, the women who love them or songs something? Songs who hate women and the women who love them. That's it. I yeah, think. yeah. Really, really interesting idea. Brilliantly executed. What um, did you contribute? I wrote the final chapter in the book about Taylor Swift. <laughs> it, was called, it was called She Wears Short Skirts, I Wear T-Shirts, The Complicated Feminism of Taylor Swift. What's ah, the title? Amazing. It. <laughs> um, but it was pre, I think 1989, I think we'd just got to maybe read when mm. I wrote it so I really want to do mm. I keep thinking I really want to do a follow up because obviously her sort of visible public feminism has really shifted yeah there's been a yeah. lot of material mm-hmm. on which to work from yeah, yeah, yeah. both yeah. musical and otherwise since yeah. then there's just there's this awful awful um, takeaway <laughs> in Kentish Town it's just like the worst kebab shop mm-hmm. like I love kebab shops in, it's in my soul I love mm-hmm. them I'm always out in kebab shops <laughs> after pubs or whatever and it's just the worst one I hate it but loads of Taylor Swift fans 
have cottoned onto the idea that she wants plays around here and she went into it. Mm-hmm. So there's loads of like TikToks, what? like, I'm going to take you to this like no amazing. Way. Yeah, and one of my friends said that his friend from abroad is a massive Taylor Swift fan and was like, can we go to this, <laughs> can we go to this kebab <laughs> shop? The Tay Tay kebab shop. Anyway, I feel like we've gone way off topic. So, um, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming in. What have you brought us today? Thank you so much for inviting me, both of you, and um, thank you for being so nice about that conference. I thought it was a really nice conference, and I really remember your work as being really great. So, oh, what was your paper on? Mm, uh, what was it? Was it on Empire and the Imperial War Museum? It was on Empire and the Imperial War Museum. Yeah, that and, like, sounds about right. Cultures of memory. Yeah, that's a great segue. It's really, really good. Yeah, <laughs> and it prepares us very well. For <laughs> um, so I um, was super excited to be invited on this podcast, and I had about a million ideas about things that I could bring with me. I was just walking around the house picking up things, being like, is this cursed? Is this cursed? <laughs> like, what's cursed enough? And then I was like, oh, it probably should be something to do with empire, given that I'm an empire historian. I've just written a book about imperialism. Um, so I have brought a bit of empire merch with me. We love merch. And we had a conversation, I think, when I said, oh, I think I know what I might bring in, about a little bit about empire merch and about um, sort of when this dates to... Because there's, I, I think, a whole way of thinking about empire merch as being something that's produced during the empire and then mm. stuff that's been produced since mm. and, like, issues around, like, nostalgia and looking at the past through through kind of merchandising and, and commodification. But this is a piece of, like, original empire merch. Mm. Um, and it is a beaker, like a um, porcelain, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, beaker. Like a little cup, right? Like a little like cup. something you might put toothbrushes exactly. in. Exactly. I was just about mm. to say like a toothbrush cup, like a small a small drinking glass. Uh, it's made by a company called Arcadian and it has a little black cat on the bottom, uh, which is super cute. Ah. Like the maker's mark. And it is to produce to commemorate the British Empire exhibition in Britain in 1924. Um, so held in Wembley in 1924. And so it's like a cream cup and on the front of it has um, a picture of Britannia sitting on a lion... On, like, a coast, it seems. I haven't actually really looked at it. <laughs> um, it's not about that. With, like, a load of, like, flags around it. Like, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's, like, the mark of the empire. And there's a load of this stuff kind of um, on Etsy and eBay and things like this, and it's oh. all branded in this way. So mm. it's clearly... I, th- I I suspect maybe it was part of, like, a... I, didn't know if, I don't know if people could buy these individually. I suspect they probably could, but I think you could probably also buy, like, a whole dinner Set. service. Mm. Probably through a newspaper. I feel like this is the era of like large full page. Yeah, adverts. doing things yeah. through newspapers. Or yeah. I think actually, I suspect with these ones as well, this is also something you could buy if you were visiting mm-hmm. um, and going to the exhibition. And that there was maybe a kind of exit through the gift shop style. In 1924, yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny to think about, but, but presumably. Yeah, I mean, in fact, in fact, I'd love you to just tell us about the exhibition because I, I, it's not not something I know a great deal about. I am super happy to do this because <laughs> it was originally in my book and I had to cut it all out. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, I am super happy. If you oh, also thanks. want, like, a full chapter length exhibition, <laughs> <laughs> or I would be more I would, than... I would totally read that. Um, so, the British Empire exhibition is very much in the tradition of things like the Great Exhibition of 1851, mm-hmm. which was held in Crystal Palace... Um, and these kind of enormous exhibitions which are about showing to Britain and to some extent the world, like mm. the extent of Britain's imperial prowess, but also to kind of reaffirm within the empire the the connections between the different the colonies and the, the metropole and also the kind of particularly the trade connections mm. and to sort of show off 
like the things that are produced in all of these different places. So mm-hmm. they're kind of cultural and they're also a bit like kind of trade fairs and expos. Uh. Quite techy as well, yeah. I want to say. Like, yeah. I've, I, I can't remember who was writing on it, but about how quite a lot of these like great exhibitions were like steam train kind of vibes totally. like a lot of quite like you know industrial material as it were yeah. the right the right brothers exciting yeah new yeah, yeah. yeah but you know that also reveal. makes it yeah. quite hard to visit yeah. the exhibition because you're going around and there's lots of like smells and grease and dirt and like all of that kind of and stuff like, you know the crystal palace setting was all about like look at all this incredible ironwork yeah look mm. at this glass that we can do so like even the setting for that one was really like look at all of that and within the empire context you have this thing where britain and the like settler colonies like Canada Australia they're showing off stuff that's very much like finished goods really kind of prowess and progress and stuff and then the other colonies are being pushed into showing like much more raw materials like Mm. you know or even people so at the great Mm. exhibition you have kind of people from various colonies being kind of brought over as exhibits themselves wearing traditional dress wearing traditional dress often being asked to do sometimes literally having to like live in spaces in the exhibition halls um but also sometimes being asked to do kind of dances and things you know like it's very much like a human zoo yeah and it's really a moment where zoos themselves are also taking off so it's that kind of all that stuff kind of going together um the Grey Exhibition of 1924 was held in Wembley, and it's what Wembley Stadium, the original Wembley Stadium, was built for. Wow. So that's why it was created. Um, it had 56 Imperial Nations. It had a Palace of Engineering. It had the Pears Palace of Beauty, which was sponsored by Pears Soap. Um, it had a lake, a funfair, a full working coal mine, and a, um, <laughs> a model of the Prince of Wales sculpted out of butter. Oh my god! It had literally something for everyone. Like whatever you wanted to see, you could see there. So (laughs) impractical. I I can't believe you haven't brought that along today. (laughs) Genuinely seems like sculpting things from butter was like an imperial industry. It's extraordinary. Like, um, it kind of overlaps with actually the episode we did on milk and the sort of role that played in Empire. Mm-hmm. And that like, yeah, this is, I suppose, a way of connecting, uh, yeah. It's like cultural strength, dominance, yeah. Yeah, through to, to sort of this, and the idea that this was a source of health as well. Yeah, yeah. and it, industry it, and art and refrigeration. Right, of course, as well, as yeah. Well. Your technological prowess as yeah. well. There. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's this like... Big empire thing that people go and visit. Um, and they're often very well attended, actually. The um, the British Empire Exhibition, I think, had 27 million visitors. Wow. Um, wow. I, it, it's a big, like, these are big events. Mm. Um, they're, like, cultural things people go down to see. Um, mm. And so it's a sort of... Um, like, what's the population of Britain? Sorry to interrupt. At no, that point, it can't idea. have been a lot so greater than 27 million. No, the... Um, it's extraordinary. It yeah. probably repeat visitors, also people coming from all around the empire yeah. for this as well. Oh, sure. Um, and tourists from Europe as well. Uh-huh. So, like, in Paris... Um, there's the Museum of... Um, I want to say the Museum of Colonialism, and I can't remember whether that's mm. true, but the, the Museum of Colonialism in Paris is in their, one of their old kind of mm. great exhibition buildings, and it's a similar kind of thing, right? Yeah. All European colonial countries are doing this um yes spain 1929 seville yes. Expo. i wanted to say this yeah. i wanted to say this because that also it um five years later yeah now. like bankrupt well like it it cost them so much money you can see why yeah. when you walk around the yeah, sites yeah, now yeah. that are left which and are these just yeah absolutely vast spectacles beautifully tiled like yeah that yeah. was my first thought as well because like when yeah talking about like great big exhibitions 
it was just such a cultural thing at the heart of empires, I think, across across Europe to like do this and also America yeah. to like put this on this this show of, of strength. And you just don't really see it in you don't really see that, right, anymore. But it's really interesting with Seville because mm. I swear it just massively bankrupted them and then there was a global financial crash and they were like, No, yeah, this like, couldn't have happened that, at yeah. a worse time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a bit like it is a bit like the Olympics in yeah. the sense of like it's a big event which happens which you have this huge infrastructure built around some of which sticks around so like with the Empire exhibition in 1924 that becomes Wembley Stadium um, right. so you have kind of infrastructure that's built and kind of sticks around for it but also this kind of real sense of disruption and also that the number of visitors that have to be accommodated at the time as well so you have this kind of like influx of people and they're all staying everywhere and this huge press coverage as well and there's like in 1924 there's just starting to be quite a lot of critical kind of left-wing press coverage where there's like quite a lot of criticism of the fact that some of the visitors from African colonies for example are um, refused rooms in hotels and things and so you start to get in 1924 some of the like left newspapers and things like this are sort of mm. saying oh this is actually really terrible and actually mm. some of the more kind of conservative ones as well because obviously what that does is kind of undermine the idea of empire right it kind of you know stops people from feeling like part of one big happy imperial family mm. yeah so you get that. It, it sort of reveals the, the exactly. truth of, of yeah, that yeah. Of can that i just say relationship yeah can i just say that's something that i that really struck me reading like reading your book is that this this sense of like now we look back on that period and we kind of go people accepted empire uncritically mm. they loved it like you know it was just a way of life and actually all of these there was there was like various different sources and forms of like anger and like mm. nuanced and complex feelings about the empire at the time yeah. and actually it is our current like nostalgia or some people's current nostalgia for that period that shapes how we view it it's not actually how it was experienced no there's a lot of criticism i mean also there's a lot of criticism by people who are in the empire at the time obviously mm. but there's also a lot of criticism like by 1938 there's the colonial exhibition which is held in glasgow mm. and that's the site of like huge amounts of resistance there's this wow. really famous pamphlet that's produced called See the Empire by the All Red Route, which is produced mm. by communist agitators. I can't remember which group. Um, and they produce this kind of illustrated booklet, which is basically um, sort of uncovering empire's horrors, wow. and they distribute it outside to huh. the crowds visiting the 1938 exhibition. And there's loads of acti- at like loads of activism in 1938 by like Scottish trade unionists mm. who are trying to call for solidarity with imperial workers and things like this and also wow. who would like resent the amount of money being spent on the exhibition and stuff at a time of real poverty in Scotland so these are like sites of celebration of empire but they are also spaces where you can have kind of resistance um mm. like in Britain for the 1924 one you get the union of students of african descent mm. are really critical of the empire exhibition again because a lot of the press coverage of it does really recycle racist tropes and they get really you know there's lots of like newspaper cartoons which have pictures of kind of african people in grass skirts and stuff Mm. and so this student organization gets really angry about this and protests and so Mm. they're interesting spaces because they're places where ordinary people can interact with empire but they're also they draw a lot of critique and they draw a lot of kind of attention which is interesting and then people could go and buy merch so well this is also (laughs) it this is something that uh reading your book i was also really struck by is you know for my sins, I guess, as a as someone on the left, you grow up um, thinking about empire. I don't know, like my 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 teenagehood was kind of spent 
not really thinking about empire, right? Mm -hmm. I was kind of in that new labor. I was growing up in that new labor, cool Britannia, literally stolen from rule Britannia, you know, that kind of, we're like, we're recasting empire as something different. And like, you know, something like we can get behind multiculturalism and be proud of it. So you kind of accept some of the narratives of empire uncritically, right? Mm. But I think something that, Uh, really struck me when I was doing my PhD at the Imperial War Museum was whenever I used the term empire, I didn't actually know the differences between the different types and forms Mm -hmm. of governance across the empire. Mm. So often now, like, you know, on the left or whatever, people go like, oh, the empire. And you're like, okay, yeah, but which bit? Mm -hmm. Because actually... In which period? In which period? And also, and, and which bit? So like a lot of the dominions, for example, the white dominions, they were treated so differently in terms of being granted. So um, white dominions as like sort of kind of the settler states, like sort of counter. Exactly, yeah, exactly, right. exactly. So they would have like completely different forms of governance. Of they had fo- different forms yeah. of governance, <laughs> just as India, the British Raj, had mm. different form. And you know, I kind of went into this PhD when I was writing it at the Imperial War Museum, just like empire is so bad, and they were like. Yeah, it is. In which way? Like, <laughs> like which, which, you know, it's all so different. Like, to actually get some of that depth and complexity back in how we talk about empire, how we talk about the different experiences, mm-hmm. is something that, like, seems like it really comes to fruition in this object, also in this example of this exhibition, and definitely in your book. So mm-hmm. if you've reached this point of the podcast, please read this book. It's really <laughs> good. Um. Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's interesting as well because one of the things, um, I don't know if you've got to this book in, bit in the book yet, but there's a bit in 1948 where there's a survey done of British people about the empire and most of them, it turns out, don't know very much about it. Yeah, and there's this like very famous, or not very famous, I say very famous, I to me, famous to me, mm. a story in the Daily Mail of like outrage because people had been asked to name British colonies and like mm. people had said, like one of the examples given was Lincolnshire. Uh, which I find really funny because that's where I'm from. That <laughs> this like, and then when you kind of, and so these were the kind of headlines at the time. And some historians have used this to illustrate that people in Britain were just kind of oblivious about empire and didn't mm. know very much about it. And and there's a there's a kind of fight in among historians about how much kind of ordinary British people were mm. impacted by empire. And this is often used to kind of say, oh well, they weren't. They didn't know anything about it. And actually, when you mm. read the survey results, it turns out people knew quite a lot. They just didn't know the terminology. Interesting. So like the the stats for the sort of headlines for the survey were, you know, well, like most people couldn't name a colony. And then when you drill down, it's like, well, a lot of people were saying India. And like India had been a colony until like a few months before because this survey was done in November 1948. Mm. So like it's not that unreasonable that they might have just sort of thought of on the first yeah. one they were asked to know might have said one that has recently become independent. You know, it's mm. not... I mean, they also... A lot of people said Africa mm. <laughs> as a colony, right. which is obviously a different sort of error. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of people said, like, America. And there was a lot of... But there was loads of confusion about, you know, what are the dominions? What are the colonies? What's a protectorate? Like, mm. I remember in Penelope Lively's um, autobiographical memoir, which we did for A-Double History... Um, uh, set in Egypt, mm-hmm. where she been, you know, it's where she grew up initially. She talks about, and this is one of, and this relates to a question I want to ask you both about how much you knew uh, about empire growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one of my first sort of reckonings with it was reading, being told to read this book at school, where, where I think in the nineteen thirties and forties she's growing up, learning, uh, being taught in a, an English school for sort of colonial expats, essentially. 
um, and seeing that most of the world is pink and assuming that that has always been the case and will always be the case and those mm. pink bits for people younger younger listeners is sort of how it was coded that it was part of the empire and it wouldn't surprise me thinking back to that memoir that it would be very easy to grow up just sort of assuming that all of this stuff was British Dominion, but without really thinking about necessarily in terms of the language of mm. of empire and conquest mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, but also, like with then, no with no understanding of like what that actually means, like no, ha- how the reality was, on yeah, the ground. The reality yeah, on the ground, why, of I course. Mean, why would you know as a twelve year old who's just sort of shown yeah. that that map? Um, but yeah, I'm really really interested in the subject of sort of how much we are taught in this country um, at you know at, at mm. state schools in this country. Uh, or in the national curriculum about the British Empire. I think I had a very unusual situation in my GCSE history at a school in South London, which it must have just been that we had like particularly left-wing teachers. <laughs> God bless them. But we did a we did a module for GCSE history on decolonial struggles mm-hmm. in Kenya, um, so particularly like um, Jomo Kenyatta. Um, and um, and Gandhi in, in India, so focusing on Kenya and India primarily, but from what I can remember, did not shirk away from the um, the sort of outrages that had most recently prompted sort of uprisings, mm-hmm. and um, in those two countries, there was a lot of like use of primary sources, um, and now when I think back on that, it was like nineteen ninety seven, that seems really surprising, but and I don't know if that's because Gove sort of helped squish some of this stuff out of the curriculum or if it was just that was a a module you could choose as a history teacher from a sort of platter of modules Mm. and most Mm -hmm. most teachers would have just chosen we'll do the great reform act and we'll do the nazis and you're done like um tudors Tudors, (laughs) sorry i I did forget about the tudors it's hitler and the henrys right okay yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so it could because like underlying i think part part of what prompted that thought is like it's always really interesting to see a survey of what british attitudes are to empire but as you've just pointed out charlotte like the top line findings conceal a lot um, the, what what are, what are your educational experiences pre sort of eighteen? So the national curriculum. I mean, I I could talk about this for ages, and I won't because it's very boring education policy stuff. Which I, people not I don't think so. But go on. So what's really interesting about history on the national curriculum is if you think about the national curriculum, it's only three years of well, it's primary school. Uh huh which we often assume doesn't involve any empire, but actually that's not always true. Uh-huh. And then it's year seven, year eight, and year nine because national curriculum only governs what you do up until the end of year nine because GCSEs are covered by exam boards. Oh, okay. And all the national curriculum does at that point is say you have to study English, maths, and science, and it used to say a language as well, right? Like yeah, loads yeah. of kids drop history at the, at the age of 14. The national curriculum set by the government only covers what you learn for the first three years at school. Oh. It's exam boards that cover what's in GCSE and A-level. That is actually super interesting. I if we want students that. to learn more about empire, we don't actually necessarily need to do a huge amount with the national curriculum, mm. although we do if we want it to be completely universal, yeah. which is a whole like other thing. If what you want to do is like make lots of imperial topics open to students who are already indicating that they're interested in studying histories, like doing yeah. GCSE and A-level, what you need is examples to set up modules for it. Oh, and then often what you need is for people to produce, and actually some people have done this, so um, the Our Migration Story Project, for example, mm. helped by the Runnymede Trust, they produced loads of materials for teaching um, empire at that point because the thing that guards mm. mostly against picking an empire topic at GCSE and A-level for a teacher who's not done it before is, like, where are your resources going to come from? Right. Where's mm. your textbook? Where are your yeah. handouts? Where are your primary sources? What are you going to do? Yeah. So, like, if there's, like, a whole kind of 
thing about what to do with year seven to nine, which would be national curriculum, and which at the moment students really only encounter it through the slave trade. And that's yeah. where I learned about empire. I learned about it through the slave trade. Right, interesting. Um, and then, and I guess actually I also learned about because you learn about the First World War and like the Treaty of Versailles. And obviously, you do actually learn about empire when you learn about the Treaty of yeah. Versailles mm. because you learn about all the colonies being horse traded. Mm-hmm. Mm. You learn about like. Um, Trianon and Sever and stuff mm-hmm. and about like mm-hmm. you know Turkey and Germany being forced mm-hmm. to give their colonies up to Britain mm-hmm. and that at least kind of opens the the possibility exactly, of that existing right? that yeah. not, not yeah. only the colonies existed in the 1920s but also that they could be kind of like f- taken from one country and given to another yeah. as a form mm-hmm. of victory or something that, that's an mm-hmm. interesting thing if you think about it yeah but I think for a lot of people it is it's slave trade right that's yeah. where mm-hmm. you kind of encounter imperialism mm-hmm. um and the story is always quite like linear, and it's always it always starts with the end. It always starts with Britain abolishing yeah. the slave trade yeah. and the yeah. really wonderful beneficence yeah. of yeah. the Royal Navy. And again, like not always, right? Teachers have quite a lot of free reign here. Okay, good. But again, what if the resources are there to teach about mm. Wilberforce? You're going to teach about Wilberforce a lot yeah. of the time, yeah. Because you know teachers are overworked and they don't have time to kind of completely rewrite them. So it, there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of like structural impetus mm. towards teaching particular mm. stories and you do have to learn about the slave trade in britain before you drop history yeah but you know that's not necessarily helpful if what you're learning is that britain was this great humanitarian nation that ended the slave trade right. mm. um, if that's the primary it tells take you something away. about yeah, yeah. imperialism right but it doesn't really yeah. tell you about british imperialism very, very partial slice yeah, exactly. of, that, of that complex story yeah. mm. what about you kesha what did you grow up sort of understanding about britain's role in the world i think it's exactly that yeah. it's, li- it's literally just Slave trade, Treaty of Versailles. I mean, it's become a thing now, hasn't it? Mm. That, like, especially on the left, we're kind of like, there isn't enough education about this, I think, right? Rightly so. Um, I don't know how it's changed now. My view on it was just... It felt like learning about power mm. at that age felt quite boring mm. because yeah, right, you don't really... Under- it's so vast. It's yeah. almost like the water that we swim in, the air that we breathe. The, the empire was everywhere, but just out of grasp, do you know what I mean? Like, especially during that kind of new Labour era where you see the kind of British flag jazzed up on various, I don't know, Jerry Halliwell's dress or whatever, <laughs> thinking like, yeah, this is something that everyone's going to get behind. But you don't really understand the associations of what that means at all. Yeah. Historically, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's such a weird one because... Whenever there were conversations about empire, they weren't really had with school. They were had with, I don't know, like adults, I guess. Mm. Or you'd pick up on adults having conversations about the legacies maybe of empire or something Mm. like that. And I remember at quite a young age having a conversation about the trains in India and about how... um, the the British always made trains made not made the trains run on time that was miscellaneous <laughs> but made the trains <laughs> yes. and I was actually listening to your um your podcast on imperial nostalgia mm-hmm. about this because it's you know you often have this often a, a discussion around the trains is that like Britain created trains in India but what you don't hear about is the fact that they were uh, race segregated that they um, only mm-hmm. went from like important places to export export materials right mm. to export essentially the the capital that that well, what would become capital mm. to basically like fuel the british day <laughs> so it's just it was just crazy and i think i was having a conversation with a polish person about this about mm. empire obviously like 
how we how we talk about uh, colonization of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Some some deny that it is an it was a colonization process, but a lot of Eastern Europeans feel like Russia dominated that mm-hmm. that entire region. And I was like, how can you, as a Polish person, say to me, oh, but but they made trains. Like, would you say that to a single Polish person? Like, oh yeah, but after the Second World War, like Stalin actually rebuilt Warsaw? Like, no, it's not about that. Do you know? And it's just crazy that this that this kind of like fog, this kind of blindsidedness about how similar actually certain struggles are in terms of power are. And I think we're not really taught that. And I think that's a great shame because it does a massive disservice to like how we conceptualize like it like international struggle, right? Against against that it's also like a viewpoint in that like i think when i was a child most of my knowledge of empire well no I, it all came from pop culture right none of it came from really learning mm. yeah, so it yeah. everything from like kipling mm. uh, and like the just so stories mm. and watching um the jungle book and this kind of thing and then Tintin as well yeah very imperial mm. yeah right? um not britain's empire but like a real kind of level of imperialism yeah like um, incredibly racist. Oh, incredibly racist. Incredibly racist in a way that I had just never noticed Completely when it was of, like yeah. on the beat, like a BBC story. Yeah. Like mm. Tintin goes, like, I don't know, and explores like what was the Red Sea. The BBC? Tintin was always on the BBC. Was it? Yeah. What, like TV versions? Like an animated version. Ah, animated TV versions, no but also um, audio versions. I was wondering if he was a guest uh, on The One Show or something. But no, I didn't. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I've learned something there. And now we've got Tintin <laughs> to tell us all about his, his adventures in views. DR Congo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's all go there. Yeah. It's um, definitely like, I think I read like The Secret Garden when I was a small mm. child. Um, which is, you know, which introduced me to the idea of an ayah, like an Indian nanny who comes back to Britain with you and that mm. kind of thing. And like, I would have picked it up in those kind of, and I read a lot of, you know, there's a real way in which pop culture has a slight lag often on social attitudes because with books in particular, right, you tend to read the stuff that your parents, I read a lot of my mum's childhood books. Mm. Mm. Same. And like my dad's childhood books. And so I read a lot of stuff that had been published in the kind of 50s and 60s. And they would probably have stuff that was from the 30s and stuff like this, right? So mm. you read loads of stuff. You read loads of Enoch Blyton and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And, like, there's lots of imperial attitudes in these things. Um, and, like... Um, you got me wondering whether... Does Follies and Amazons have an imperial thread? See, I actually was thinking... I don't think... Well, well oh, I, grew up on. I bet it did, because I... They I, were definitely messing about in boats, which, about is, boats, which is pretty... Aren't they? And they're playing... Also, don't they... You know, they're probably playing, like... Um, <laughs> I bet there's some stuff about like cannibals and natives. Yeah, and yes, I'm right? sure that's right. That kind of, even if they're just the playing kind of... The Pix and the Martyrs, maybe yeah. in that one. But then Pix and Martyrs is interesting because it's making it kind of like mm. a nativist British, right? Yeah, but that yeah, kind yeah. of... There's definitely that kind of thing going on. And you don't have to go as far as like... You know, when I used to... I, I A course I used to teach at York, particularly on kind of imperial cultures, um, you, you know, I'd set my students stuff where they'd look at... Um, uh, Winnie the Pooh, for example, and there's a way mm. of reading Winnie the Pooh as being about all of the different um, colonies and things because those animals wow. come from different places, right? Like Tigger and Eeyore, like tigers and elephants. And, like, blowing my mind they come right from. now. <laughs> and, and I've never made that. Yeah, and yeah. Kanga, a kangaroo from Australia. From oh, Australia. gosh, of course. Like, it's not necessarily that they actually represent those places. No, but the, sure. the selection of animals definitely mm. is coming from kind of mm. imperial narratives. But you don't have to go that, you know, actually a lot of the stuff I read was explicitly like they would yeah, go to yeah, India yeah. or they'd come back from... And then I was a bit older, I'd read like Mary Wesley books and stuff, and people were always going to India. Then, mm-hmm. like, people's parents were always going to India and leaving them in boarding schools and mm. this kind of things. Um, so that was my empire. I don't think I really knew very much about empire at all until I um, was an undergraduate and I studied with Catherine Hall, 
who, if you're going to learn about empire, is like a good historian to learn about empire from. But definitely, like, I was always much more interested in kind of contemporary history, and I think I did Bismarck and the unification of Germany for my A levels. So that's that's unorthodox. (laughs) Well, fair fair play. (laughs) Can I ask about the role of pop culture in in your book? Because Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's. Like, just how vital is it as a way of telling the story of attitudes to empire over time? Like, I was delighted to see Adrian Mole crop up because when I think about the Falklands, my first thought is also Adrian Mole, mm. um, a book I wrote, you know, books I wrote yeah. when I was 12, and he was, he's obsessed with it. And yeah. The, the, the Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, again, for our younger listeners, very popular sort of 80s satire, basically. Yeah, which I read as a teenager and did not realise was satire. Right. <laughs> it was a genuine diary. I was 13 and I yeah. read, and I think I knew it was written by like another author, but I was just like, well, this teenager seems to have the normal problems. And so <laughs> it's only quite recently that I was like, yeah. oh, right, he's a figure of fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I start the Falklands. I've got the 1980s chapter, I start with folk, with um, Adrian Mole's entry in his diary about the Falklands, which is about how it's dead exciting. It's dead exciting that um, England, I think it starts with, England is at war with Argentina. Yeah. Um, and he wakes his dad up, who gets really worried because he thinks the Falklands are an island off the coast of Scotland. Um, and Adrian mocks him. And then, but then at night they can't find it. They're looking on a map and they can't find it. And they eventually find them under a crumb of cake near Argentina. So they're like, <laughs> there's right. this real sense. It's such a good illustration of how British people are like, you know, he's like really excited, but yeah. also doesn't really know where they are. Mm. And there's this real panic. And I think... You know, obviously it's fictional, but um, yeah. I now know. But it was a real, like, it's a really interesting way of accessing a particular way of thinking about empire that I think if you are trying to write a book about quote-unquote ordinary people, mm. which I was trying to do in this book, mm. and I was trying to write a book about how empire affected ordinary people in Britain um, and how they kind of you know, reacted to, experienced, thought about empire, you you kind of have to go through pop culture because it's a way of escaping from the official narrative. It's a mm. way of getting out of the National Archives at Kew. Um, <laughs> something we're all trying to do. It's, uh, Please it's, let me out. And there's, a kind of like, there's like a level of different things, right? So I've got like news bulletins in there. I've got like Michael mm. Burke's um, yeah. uh, broadcast from Corem from the, the start of the Ethiopian famine. Um, I've got, I think I've got board games. I think some board games... Maybe stayed in there after my editor. Like it's a very cursed objects out. approach to history. Mm. That's why we love it. <laughs> it's, it's stuff, right? It's interesting. Yeah. It also um, there was an element to which this was really helpful because I signed the contract for this book in February 2020, and then we immediately went into lockdown and all the libraries closed. Oh boy! And I, yeah. you know, I did get an extension. <laughs> my, my publishers were like, "Okay, fine." Like we, I suppose, a once in a generation. <laughs> given, that, given that all of the archives and the libraries are literally closed, I guess you can't go. But, um, but I ended up buying a load of. Stuff on eBay um not the Empire Cup actually I already owned that but like <laughs> I bought a lot of um like kids books mm. um, oh, wow. and I bought a lot of uh school textbooks on eBay I bought memoirs and diaries and things like this oh, fascinating. um so there's a degree to which pop culture is also quite accessible as a historian mm. if you're trying to do something which doesn't involve like physically in my case could not involve walking into a library mm. um and it's interesting to see how these quote-unquote ordinary people were, like, accessing empire through lots of things, including merchandise, mm-hmm. right? So including kind of um, children's toys. And um, like my my partner's grandma has a nativity set, and when you turn the people over, they're stamped as empire made on the bottom. Oh, wow. There's an old 
nativity no more specific than that just, just like empire somewhere made. in yeah. which is which is a which is a kind of it's coming from the empire marketing board stuff in the 1930s and, mm. and like this kind of push for you to buy materials from empire and make sure that your hard-earned money goes to support your imperial imperial brethren and this kind of thing mm. Um, but like yeah, children's girls' dolls would be stamped Empire Made. Like often wow. on the bum actually. So they'd be like oh you could lift up their skirts and see the Empire Made stamp <laughs> or whatever. Christ alive. Or like, you know, <laughs> boys would play with just stereotypically little girls would play with these dolls, little boys would play with like toy soldiers mm-hmm. that were often depicting imperial battles. Mm. Um, oh really. So that kind of stuff. Can you mm. talk talk a bit about the Empire Marketing Board? Because it's something I've only encountered again like relatively recently through Owen Hazley's work I think yeah and so the Empire Marketing Board was created in the interwar period and it's partly based on this desire that the British government has to um, push British consumers into wanting things from within the empire because Mm. in a world where you have the sterling area um, you have like a lot of tariffs it's very expensive for Britain to trade with America it's very expensive to trade with Europe you want people to be buying things from within the empire but also tied to this is trying to create a kind of sense of solidarity and connection with the rest mm. of the empire mm-hmm. and so you get some very famous films in the interwar period like there's a very famous one about Christmas pudding where there's a little boy and he's kind of I think I can't remember actually if he's buying everything for the Christmas pudding or if he kind of sees the Christmas pudding whole. Mm-hmm. But basically, they, they break down all of the ingredients and they all come from different places in the empire. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the pudding is kind of, you know, cloves come from Zanzibar. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this is like all comes from this imperial space. So the Empire Marketing Board, like it's it's big legacy for historians as they produce these incredible posters, which are like <laughs> urging just really, really nice gobbets to give students, which are like urging British people to buy things from the empire or spend their money in empire. Mm. Um, and sometimes, actually, within them, the Empire Marketing Board would have as kind of um, a part, part. One of the selling points of Empire was this idea of like modernity and progress. Mm-hmm. So they'd often have like two pictures, like one showing, you know, like a very um, basic African. Um, I say African, like you know, this very generic, very basic look of a kind of African port or something with like little rowing boats, and then they'd have like a picture of like Liverpool or something like mm. this, like a big dock, mm. and this kind of sense of like modernity and progress as being within the empire and being part of like trade. Mm. Um, mm. So that's what that's what the Empire Marketing Board is. I was just going to ask you a little bit about your connection to the object. Mm-hmm. How did you end up with this object? <laughs> it's It's interesting because I think when I was buying stuff, in the pandemic, it was like almost exclusively books. Right? I'm buying all these books mm. and they all kind of come into the house. And I was thinking about it when I was thinking about this. And I was like, oh, what other merch do I own? And I was like, oh, well, when I bought the beaker, I also bought a postcard, a commemorative postcard from the same thing. And I was like, oh, I do have that um, commemorative program from the Festival of Britain from 1951. Like, I, hmm. I was like, oh, I have got a, a program for the Queen's coronation as well, actually, in my office. And I was like, oh, I've got that silk scarf that the industrial set. <laughs> I do actually have quite a lot of historical merch. <laughs> This, um, so in I worked at the University of York from 2013 to 2015 and I taught a, I, I taught a special subject for 30 students on empire, empire cultures, which had been set up by a historian called Liz Butner, who's written a really good book about decolonization. I was teaching that and it, it was a really, it kind of pushed me actually that course to think a lot about the way in which empire can be like a bottom up as well as a top down kind of mm. phenomenon. And when I was teaching, I introduced a week actually i wrote a week into the course about empire about the great empire exhibitions and i so i had something on 1851 and something on 1951 i had 1938 and 1924 and i think i was genuinely just like googling to find kind of primary sources like posters and things Mm. that i could put for my students as gobbets and then i kept seeing pictures of this kind of stuff 
1924, because there's loads of posters obviously associated with all these exhibitions, but these, this kind of porcelain ware, and this was on eBay, and I bought it for £9 and one pence mm -hmm. in January 2014, when I was teaching this course. Um, and uh, yeah, I also bought a postcard which shows the British government, a British government building at the Great mm. Exhibition as well, which I've since had a look actually and they actually were part of a set of like 15 postcards and you can mm -hmm. buy them today like in like a little commemorative box. You know, again, it's clearly like a museum gift shop kind mm. of item that you would get now, yeah. right? You go to a museum, you get like 15 little postcards of like Van Gogh pictures or mm. something. So it has that real sense of like, oh, yeah, this is this is just what merch looks like. Yeah. It's a souvenir. This is, it's this a, is a souvenir. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is a souvenir. And that's what this is. It's a souvenir. You know, it's a nice thing to show students. So it's a great prompt. Yeah. It's a nice I mean, it's a nice thing. Right. It's always good teaching with things. With <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, this is the thing. I often find that historians tend to be drawn to the 2D, drawn to ephemera, drawn mm -hmm. to posters and postcards. And I just love the fact that this is like a... This is an object that you can hold because it implies a different sense of use. Yeah. Definitely. Because when mm. because I think often historians don't think about they kind of use things as ways to kind of illustrate points, mm -hmm. right? But what does it actually mean about the lived experiences? And this is all about that bottom-up approach to empire. Who's using this, right? Who's using this? Who's buying this? Mm -hmm. Why? Is it just something that they put on their mantelpiece and they leave? Or, I mean, the condition implies that it's not used massively. Yeah, there's a little it's crack in, in it, but it's not chipped it's or anything. Stain. It's in a good condition. Um, it's got a little bit of staining on the inside. I think it's also interesting because it's a small object. Um, and so if it was bought as part of a big set, then that's mm -hmm. one thing. But I suspect that this is this looks like a standalone thing, mm. right, that you could buy, in which case it's relatively accessible, it's mm -hmm. relatively cheap, which kind of fits in with my thing of ordinary people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It was largely ordinary people who had a day trip to the Empire Exhibition. Mm. It was a nice thing to do, to go to Wembley and yeah. talk around. And when you see the floor plans and things of these, these exhibitions, there's always, like, tea rooms mm -hmm. and stuff, mm. right? And you can read loads of accounts of people having gone. And it's always, you know, you buy... There were always different levels of tickets. Mm -hmm. So you'd buy a ticket that... Exactly the same as now. You'd buy the cheapest ticket. Or you'd buy one that maybe had, like, access to, like, a mm. a nice space to mm -hmm. sit. Or you'd buy one that included, like, a cream tea. Or, a VIP. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, <laughs> because also in 1924, Britain's very class stratified as well. Yeah, right? So you yeah, wouldn't necessarily yeah. expect very wealthy people to have the same experience at this sort of sure. place. Yeah, and that's something that really fascinates me as well. Because often when we think back to the like how they lived in the past. Mm -hmm. Lots of people, it was a really heavily class stratified society, which meant that lots of people couldn't like just afford things. Like lots of people didn't have lots of things. Like yeah. I own lots mm -hmm. of shit in my room. Yeah. But that's because of a particular like, you know, how stuff is produced now and the accessibility of it yeah. and the and the price of it. Lots of it's plastic, for example. But a lot of people couldn't People didn't have as much bric-a-brac. They yeah. didn't, yeah. <laughs> it is. I mean, yeah. it's interesting because actually the Victorians loved bric-a-brac. Like, the Victorians are right. fucking... Can I? Yeah, I can swear, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, obsessed with bric-a-brac, right? Very... And actually, it's interesting because there's also a moment in the Victorian period where, like, because you get mass production with mm. the Industrial Revolution, mm. right? So you get this point where you can have things produced. And, like, yes, you still have very poor people who can't buy stuff. But because you get the moment in the 19th century where things like, like, Wellington becomes a celebrity, for example, and when Wellington dies... People buy pictures of it, yeah. right? And buy really? mugs and cups and stuff. When yeah. Victoria dies, people buy mugs and plates mm. and cups. And this is, you know, you get like, now you get like the coronation mug. And, yes. you know, like there was a very, when I was a kind of student, it was a very kitschy thing to have like a Charles and Diana. Yeah. Yes, I was yeah. just going to That's what this reminds yeah. me of. Yeah. It's like, it's like a coronation is, cup because of all of the Union Jacks, right? Yeah. It looks a lot like a coronation thing. It, that circle in the middle looks like it could have 
Totally. I notice it actually has some industry depicted on it as well. It does, sitting behind Britannia. There's like some factories with like large cranes and stuff. Which is the the industry on Britain's shores, I'm assuming. And then there's a boat that is off Britain's shores, which is going off to adventure and, And, uh, and, you know, um, well, conquest, obviously, but... Exactly, and then the kind of flags around the edge, which are the Dominion, the various Dominion. But if we're to speculate about the subjectivity of the kind of person that would buy it, I think that's really useful to talk about, like, Mm. and and to do the material culture bit of this podcast. Yeah, go on, sorry. Well, I was going to say, like, the coronation mugs, I think, is a good good kind of comparison because you don't know people's... Intention. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you you had a Charles and Diana mug, like, my grandpa hated the royal family right like had a real being his bonnet about he, was, he wasn't british he was he was german and he had a real being his bonnet about the fact that we still had a royal family in this country and we called ourselves democratic even though some of them were german well it, Sorry, uh, yeah. like it got to the point where like we would like deliberately i'm from lincolnshire and we would like deliberately stop at sandringham when we've been on holiday to norfolk to like send him postcards of charles and diana like, <laughs> <laughs> he, it really wound him up he found it really really antagonizing Very <laughs> but like family trolling yeah, he, in it. his house there is some commemoration like yeah. you know my nana died a few years ago and when the house was cleared like there was royal family stuff there partly because we would always send him this stuff mm. right mm. so there's all this stuff in his house but also you know it doesn't necessarily represent like a real wholehearted support for that thing mm-hmm. mm. and certainly with something you've bought at an exhibition like like i have a toddler now and like you come out of museums and like almost always buy something in the gift shop yeah. <laughs> and there's just loads of tat in my house from like mm. museums and things like this it doesn't necessarily represent a really full-hearted engagement mm. on on my behalf with like the the national maritime museum yeah right? are you sorry are you saying that your pencils from the national maritime museum mean that you don't love national maritime exactly right like the little, <laughs> little like um whale whistle i have to, like that i bought to stop my toddler from screaming like yeah. famously you hate whales exactly <laughs> noted hate of whales and so like it's really interesting because you know this could have been bought by i mean it could have been bought as a part of a massive kind of tea set and it mm. might have been bought by someone that's very wealthy this could have been bought by like a young courting couple who wanted a lovely reminder of mm. like the day that they got engaged or something yeah, right yeah. there's like loads yeah. of different reasons why you would buy a reminder of a day out that mm. have a lot more to do with the day out probably than the thing that you went about. and let's let's mm. let's re- repeat this point as well did you say was it 27 million people or well, 27, 27 million, million visits but over mm. a six month period yeah is extraordinary and similar with the i'm glad you mentioned sort of the you know class stratified sort of um, how class stratified British society was, but I think these exhibitions were probably a really rare, from what I understand, the 1851 great exhibition. This was in a sense, the first time that you have large crowds of different classes, sections of British society, and indeed geography, you know, people mm-hmm. travelling to the capital, um, assembling together in one place. Like, and, mm-hmm. and it, it could have been any of them, as you say. That's the thing, that. and it happens more and more right throughout. So you have like the creation of like railway stations do this, and then department mm. stores, and mm. you get gradually a creation of more and more spaces and parks and things mm. like this, right? Places where people might mingle that aren't as class stratified. Yeah. But then, like the, these empire exhibitions, are always really. I said the 1938 one was controversial, and it was, but it had a lot of visitors. Mm. Obviously, the Festival of Britain is actually very different. Mm-hmm. It's very self-consciously domestic. The Festival of okay. Britain, the Attlee government who planned it, um, you know, are. Empire creeps in a lot, actually, and I talk about this in the uh, book because it's yeah. a, you know it's it's very easy to say it's very domestic, and it is. It's it's not an empire exhibition. They don't have people there from around. They don't have like an India pavilion or whatever. Mm. 
but they also like have an exploration pavilion right, <laughs> where, right. They, <laughs> where they talk about Britain's long history of exploration. I wonder like, what that could mean. Exactly. Yeah. It's not difficult to see empire in these spaces. Yeah. Um, but they also had a colonial month in, 19, mm-hmm. uh, in 1948, which actually <laughs> was like from mid-June to mid-July. Before the, Black History Month, there was colonial. Colonial month, month um, which was in a in a building off Oxford Circus and had and was so popular and so successful that actually it ended up kind of staying for a long time and then becoming, it went on provincial tour. Mm. Um, like, people are interested in this stuff partly because they're interested in empire and also because people like a day out. Mm. You know, like, there's, there's, it's an interesting thing to do, mm. which is, I, which I think is, you know, another kind of challenge maybe for historians looking at engagement with this stuff is like, well you know, how much is this is kind of wholehearted ideological buying into these no, things and how much is it like hugely important fun. point that really came up with um, you know, the Queen's Jubilee and mm-hmm. then death, funeral, the queue, the coronation, like, you know, for me sort of thinking about the you know, my interest there is, is in is in crowds and how they behave and who is composed them, but never underestimate the fact that people just want something to do yeah. and like they want mm. to see a thing that is happening yeah. <laughs> and a thing and that everyone to... else is seeing as yeah well, right, right. Like, exactly yeah. it's like, that thing of there? being part of capital H history like I yeah. was there during yeah. that yeah. big capital H history moment which is why I got the mug today. Exactly. Yeah. 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 it's very easy to buy like a commemorative programme from these things because people mm. tend to buy the programme because they mm-hmm. want to show they were there mm-hmm. so yeah. it's really mm-hmm. easy to get commemorative programmes from the Festival of Britain or from the Empire Exhibition on eBay. Yeah, you mm. said this was this cut was nine quid. It was and nine it's quid. like it's a hundred well, it's be a hundred years old next year, yeah. won't it? It's um, also really interesting because mm. a lot of people who aren't historians and particularly who don't work in museums often this is kind of this is very tangential, but you know like when people start pulling down statues and everyone's like, Oh, they should put it in a museum. Mm. Um and there's a tendency to think of like something like this, like you could see it in a museum display there will mm. be one of these in a museum displays place. It's mm. it's interesting. It definitely is like a historic object that you could do a lovely exhibition on the Imperial exhibitions, you could have one of these. Mm. But also like it's fine for me to own this. Yeah. Right? Like, mm. This was mass produced, there were loads of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting kind of thing when you start to think about historic merch. Mm. that there is sometimes a kind of um sort of preciousness about it and a and a sense mm. of like like these things being very important or very historically and it's like well now actually as we move into the 20th century a lot of this stuff is just going to be yeah there's loads of it it's right? not like it's a like, saxon amulet i've been yeah. watching the detectorists recently <laughs> but like you know you find something like that you, you do need to contact yeah, the authorities yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> i'm not saying like don't like keep the like Norse chessmen that you find or whatever. Like, <laughs> definitely bring up a museum about those. But like, it's. I think it's interesting that like people often have stuff that their families own, and you see this on things like Antiques Roadshow, right? Mm. And they have historic things, oh, and yeah. we tend to think about historic things being valuable just because they're old. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like, oh my god, I've got this violin, or I've got this whatever, and they're like, yeah, it's worth nothing. Not a fear of mass yeah. production, basically. Particularly yeah. as you get into the nineteenth century, yeah, exactly, yeah. and it's like, well, this is lovely, and it's great that your family has this, but like, it's not. And it's something, <laughs> something like this, which is produced by its very nature as a mass-produced object. Mm. Can I ask, is there any, you know, historiographically cause for optimism about sort of the, just the explosion of, of, of really interesting books and other explorations and the changing conversation about Britain's relationship with empire and its legacy in the last few years? I'm thinking about specifically like... Well, I mean, there, there's, there are many books I could mention, like Kojo Karams, for example, is, you know, fascinating, mm-hmm. Uncommonwealth. Um, but but, but the, one of the 
moments that really kind of opened my eyes and surprised me was David Olasuga's TV series mm-hmm. about the economic benefits of, of Empire and the amount of compensation that was paid. And I was so impressed with how specific it was. I All of it was new to me. I didn't know anything about the kind of compensated moment of uh, the arguments over how much uh, slavers were, were compensated uh, and how they continued to draw wealth for years and years afterwards. But could a show like that have been made 10 years previously? Well, I mean, it could because yeah. the academic research underpinning that was done 10 years ago. Interesting. So but it wasn't. It's based <laughs> on the UCL London legacies of british slave owning project uh, i mean i assume you know that's where yeah. that data comes from because they traced all of this compensation and the way it was paid to mm. so Catherine hall and katie donnington and mm. um the other kind of researchers who were who were attached to that project right did mm. that work mm. and i was talking about this with some historians the other day because um i had just read um samir shackle's brilliant article in the guardian mm. recently about the controversy at cambridge about their reporting to their slave owning past mm. And I was saying, it's really interesting because I finished my PhD 10 years ago mm. um, in 2013. I, I had my brother in 2013. And I, at the time, was working on, you know, colonial development, history of empire. I was teaching very heavily this kind of imperial cultural stuff. And like I had no sense that that was controversial or that mm. it had any kind of public... I mean, it had public interest in the sense that I would desperately go and try and get people to listen to my work, right? But mm. it wasn't something... There was a bit I was using in my research a bit of stuff like Dominic Sandbrook writing in the mail about how everyone was too um, keen these days to apologise for imperialism and this kind mm. of thing, right? There was some co- controversy in 2007 about whether we should apologise for the slave trade. Yes. There were little bits and pieces mm. of controversy around this. But in 2013, largely, this was not. Mm. Uh. And the Legacies of British Slave Owning Project, when that Legacies of British Slave Owning Ownership Project, when that when their results came out, when they kind of published all of their research, you know, the press coverage was like, oh, my God, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's family owned slaves. There was a mm. thing where both David Cameron and Samantha Cameron's families had both owned slaves, like, kind of separately. Um, wow. <laughs> Graham Greene, uh, George Orwell's kind of... Right. That was wow. the one, obviously, that the right-wing press really loved. Like, mm. yeah. Blair's, like, yeah, ancestors yeah. had owned slaves. But it was, like, <laughs> interest, right? Like, mm. it was... There was no sense... No one wrote a piece being, like radical academics at UCL trying to drag down Prime Minister by showing his slow-burning past. Mm, mm. And then when the National Trust report came out mm. a couple of years ago, and it had this tiny in-passing reference, the National Trust report, which looked at like uh, a bunch of National Trust properties and kind of illustrated where they connected to empire or slavery. Mm. It had this kind of little reference to Chartwell, which is Churchill's old house, because it said, oh, um, uh, he had voted at one point against an Indian Independence Act. Mm. So that's a connection to empire. Mm. And, you know, Churchill was prime minister during the war, connection to empire. Right, that was it. Like, it's, yeah. a tiny re- it's a tiny, tiny mm. reference in this huge report, which goes into loads of details about places like Speak Hall in Liverpool, which has a huge connection to kind of slave ownership. But also places like the house that was lived in by Wordsworth, who was mm. an anti-slavery campaigner. Mm. Right, so it's not, it wasn't just about condemning people. But the press response to that report was horrific like mm. the researcher what the, the lead researcher had to be given police protection oh my God. like there was a huge amount of press thing the the government said that they could not have any more money from the government to do work ever on that project Fucking hell that's outrageous um <laughs> like the daily telegraph the daily mail individual politicians spoke out against it and like like what's changed like in mm. the last like decade basically mm. it's gone from like oh, this is kind of interesting. Look at this interesting past about slavery. To, like, now, like, yeah, Samira Shackle's piece where she went mm. into all of the stuff happening at Cambridge where, like, mm. emeritus professors had stood up and screamed 
at the uh, woman and early career researcher who had been working on this thing and was screaming at them like history's a crap subject that this work is like trying to like do down Cambridge that it's like pointless research mm. so actually in some ways I think like the opposite actually yeah, there's been an yeah. explosion of writing and that's brilliant yeah. mm. but something has shifted mm. we are in a much worse place in terms yeah. of public discourse around this yeah. and actually the research that that David Olasega's program was based on, yeah. you know, was largely received positively. Yeah, the program I think was received relatively positively, mm-hmm. and in the last couple of years, there's been this like, it's like the, the, the culture yeah. war. Yeah. It, it's I mean, it's hard not to see it as a reaction, hmm. which is what it is essentially to the opening up of those histories and the telling, you know, the story, you know, stories that, as you say, had historically been whitewashed. Um, there was this really interesting moment because I, I actually noticed a similar thing around 2013, especially in like museums. Very, very little stuff in terms of like it it didn't really feel so um, those histories, right? Colonial histories weren't necessarily explored, mm-hmm. but they it, it didn't feel such a there wasn't such a focus on it yeah. in a way. So it didn't become it didn't feel so controversial. Yeah. And then around I think there is this like Brexit moment yeah, definitely. where the like use and misuse of a historical past mm-hmm. is really put to the forefront because you know there's all the stuff about the second world war and they didn't like you know we're fighting alone and you know mm-hmm. fighting for our freedoms my my granddad didn't fight in a war to be ruled by europe and all this kind of yeah. stuff where the extent of the political analogy goes so far the historical analogy goes so far and then around that time there was a real reckoning with imperial histories or like the history of empire in a way that yeah in those preceding years like I try and find I try and find Mm. stuff from that time and it just doesn't feel it's not it's not fueled there's no like public fueling around that I guess is what I'm trying to say badly (laughs) you know there's been some really good books come out recently which have thought about this history but it's been it's been kind of accompanied with this massive I think Brexit is is a really good marker mm. of it mm. and and you can i'm really soft on the olympic opening ceremony in my book like i'm really i really really soft pedal. i listened to your podcast about it and i was like <laughs> yeah i mean i know um, <laughs> i know i lived in bow when this was happening there was a, there were like anti-aircraft missiles on, on, on the thing i could literally see them from my window oh my god but like pandemonium <laughs> with too many a's and too many e's I'm really soft on it but I'm partly really soft on it because what I'm thinking about in that moment is about this like construction of British history as being partly like just the way that they try to construct history as being like profoundly multicultural right mm. this is a real moment yeah. and then you get like Aidan Burley being like oh this is all lefty multicultural crap why weren't the red arrows there etc etc mm. um and liberals like to hop back to that moment of 2012, right? As yeah. everything being, that's the last time everything was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Last time everything was peaceful. And then they like to see 2016 as this like terrible turning point where everyone became racist. Mm. And, like, there was no racism in Britain before 2016. <laughs> and then Brexit like, unleashed it. But at the same time, there definitely has been a moment where I think like, because, because actually, because people, progressives on the left, like misused history very badly in the Brexit mm. debate as well. Mm. We, but we have got to this point where history's become very fraught, where historians have also become very, like, the sense of what a historian is or what they're motivated by has become very fraught as well. Mm-hmm. So because of, of figures like Nigel Bigger, there's this real sense of, like, oh, there are some historians who are good historians and they're, like, conservative ones who want to defend empire and then there are some historians who are, like, dangerous and radical and also not real historians and don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. 
they studied at like 92 universities exactly. and yeah and they're trying we're to like just, destroy society exactly yeah. right and they and they're like most they're ideologically motivated people mm. And there has, I think, been a real sense, like, more recently, and this is partly something we've imported from America, but a lot of it's homegrown, mm. of history being something, and imperial history in particular, being something which, like, is only being rewritten by these, like, historians with an axe to grind. Yeah. Um, and it's a real, like, it's it's really risky. Like, it's, mm. it's dangerous. It's a dangerous space to be yeah. in. Um, so it's a yeah, it's interesting. You need people repeating David Olasuga. Was it David Olasuga's line that if you're not doing revisionist history, it's just it's just photocopying? Yeah. <laughs> Can I, yeah. Like that, that's what history <laughs> is. It's the revising of things. If you're not rewriting history, like do we just have a list and we take it off when it's done? Like, <laughs> I've done the British Empire now, so I've guys completed you know, it, mate. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? Like, I guess that kind of just brings me on to my final thought um, on your book, which is. That I take your point that like being a historian that and that space is quite is quite a dangerous game being played there, right? By a lot mm. of people. Um and I just wanted to say how refreshing a lot of your writing is. When you pick up books around Empire now, mm-hmm. right, they're often framed around this cultural moment from the get-go. Mm-hmm. It is from the get-go, we're gonna talk about this. And I don't think that's a bad way to organise any book, right? Because everything's about the contemporary moment that you yeah. write the book, yeah, yeah. right? And anchoring mm-hmm. it in that. And I know that obviously you touch on those bits within the book, but the way that you frame this as just this is this is fucking history. Mm-hmm. Like obviously you don't swear, but this is <laughs> this is actually history. Like it's not it's, that doesn't mean that it's free of cultural associations and understandings and implications. Mm-hmm. We're all reading it from this current moment. But the way you write gives such a sense that, like, you have been so diligent because you've really respected the people's lives and, and situations that you're looking at. And that is just something, you know, especially in your introduction, it's just such a, a beautiful framing of the complexity of life and also a lot of the big P politics that's happening that affects the small P politics and vice versa. So it was really just one of these moments for me where I was reading this book and I was like, this is something, this is something different. The way that you explore those histories is is really fucking good. <laughs> Sorry, it's really it's very well people. It's really well. It's just yeah, really that's well really people. Nice. That's so nice to hear. Thank you. It's just like yeah, I was just like in rural Poland reading this, being like, am I crying? <laughs> no, this is the power of history. Like in the sense of like this is the this is the historian's craft. Reading that, you're really struck by that. It's a very. Um, I mean, that's a very nice thing for you to say. Thank you. I I'm, think it's I'm a very. Stuck, right? It's a very crunchy book. When I give an example, I always want to give the voice to, like, the person, right? Yeah. So, like, mm. it's not... I feel like I do have to make an argument. Unfortunately, my publisher's, like, you know, always, like, you do actually have to make an argument, Charlotte. There needs to be an argument. <laughs> but there's a lot of, like, here's this person, here's this person, here's what these people are saying. You're and so think, fair. You're so fair, I think. It's a very, like... I think it's a, there's, a, there's a level of, like... There's a level of responsibility, isn't there, in this kind of, particularly in this kind of context. And also, to be honest, like, I know I am very, you know, I am obviously very left wing. I'm obviously feminist. I am obviously, like, of a particular time and space. And there are people who, you know, as all historians are, and it's really important to note that, like, all history is subjective. All history is written from, like, a particular contemporary moment. Mm. But it's also very, like, specifically, it, when you're writing about empire from this perspective, I think you do have that sense of, like, I really need to show my working mm. because I can't just write 380 pages where I'm like, empire was a bad thing, empire was a bad thing, because mm. people are going to pick that up and go, like, okay, fine, well, you're, you know, some, some mm. like, 
left at home and asked by the Daily Mail, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's good to be able to go, like, well, here, okay, here's some evidence. Right? Here are some things yeah, that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people that existed. Yeah. 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 Like, you don't have to believe me, but can you please believe, like, this person who is saying this thing about their yeah. life? Um, I loved it because I just I'm can't sure do that. <laughs> Whenever I write a history, I'm like, believe me. <laughs> just take my word for it. Just take Cash my word for it. Yeah. I think I'm just very insecure about that. So I'm always just like, here is some more evidence. Would you like some more evidence? Yeah, like, here's more. I can send you an email with <laughs> evidence some extra evidence in it yeah. if you would like. Like, it's a very, like. It's a desire to like really over-evidence. Like, there would be quite a few times actually when I published it was like, okay, I've cut the seventh example that you've given. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, but I bought these pamphlets on eBay. <laughs> Genuinely, there was that thing where I was like, but this is such a good ladybird children's book. You've got, you've got three ladybird children's books in there already. But this one has a lion on it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, and I guess with that, then that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you really so much for having me and my little empire cup. <laughs> Listeners, remember that this uh, episode of Cursed Objects is free for you to listen to. You must buy Charlotte's book because it's excellent. Um, I've forgotten what I was going to say now, Dan. We've got a Patreon. That's <laughs> oh, what you were going to say. Yeah, we do actually have more episodes available that you can access on our Patreon, which is simply, I mean, just Google Cursed Objects Patreon. I'm sure you can manage that. It's £4 a month. You get to support uh, us in making all the free ones as well. <laughs> I've run out of things to say. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.